Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is January 10th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. I know, it's me. You probably don't recognize my voice. I worked most of the holiday, and I'm paying for it now with a little bit of laryngitis, but that will not stop the knowledge translation. So the title of today's podcast is, I Can't Get No satisfaction for my chronic non-cancer pain. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Sergei Motov. He is an emergency medicine physician in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Myomedes Medical Center in New York City. He is also one of the world's leading researchers on pain management in the emergency department and specifically the use of ketamine. I mean, even his Twitter handle is at PainFreeED. Welcome back to the SGM, Sergey. Thank you so much, Ken, for having me again on the show. I'm honored and very excited to be here today with you. Well, I'm so excited. I would not put off. I would not let an illness, a laryngitis, a being able to talk really low, stop me from doing this knowledge translation with you. But you were on SGM number 175, and we were talking about the ceiling effect of Ketorolac. Oh, yeah. I remember that conversation. It was purely amazing. And I know for the fact, and I definitely hope you do, that it has affected the way our colleagues across the world, across different countries, are utilizing Ketorolac for managing a variety of acute painful conditions. And I've seen that. I've gone to other hospitals and worked at other emergency departments, and they come up to me and they say, oh, yeah, we're only going to use 10 or 15 milligrams of uh, Ketorolac now. Haven't you read that paper, Dr. Milne? And I'm like, oh, yes, I've read it, and I know Sergey, and he's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's wonderful to, to see social media being effective to transmit high-quality, clinically relevant information to the patient's bedside. But we also covered your paper on IV push versus slow infusion for low-dose ketamine on SGM number 198. And this one was done with Salim, our friend. And you made a surprise appearance on that episode. Can you remind us of your conclusions from that randomized trial on low-dose ketamine? Well, Salim and I agreed with your conclusion. Duh, big surprise. But today, we're not even going to be talking about ketamine. I can't believe it. We're not going to be talking about ketamine. But rather, we're going to take a step back and discuss the use of opioids for non-cancer chronic pain. Can you give us a case? Certainly. A 45-year-old woman comes to the emergency department with a chief complaint of worsening of her left-sided back pain over the past week after she did some heavy lifting at work. She has been suffering from chronic low back pain due to L5, L4 disc herniation for over a month. She denies bowel-bladder dysfunctions, weakness in her bilateral lower extremities, or loss of sensation in her legs. On her physical examination, she does maintain normal sensory examination, but she does have a pain upon straight leg raise in distribution of L4, S1. While you are contemplating therapeutic modalities to help this woman. She tells you that she has been taking oxycodone several times a day for over a month and occasionally supplementing with gabapentin, 
but pain doesn't seem to be get any better. She wonders how much longer she needs to be continue taking oxycodone to see some improvement. Well, you know, Sergey, that opioids are frequently prescribed for patients with chronic non-cancer pain, whether it's nociceptive or neuropathic pain. However, the prolonged use of these analgesics may not provide significant pain relief, but instead may lead to development of significant adverse effects, such as tolerance, dependence, misuse, and in some cases, a development of an opioid use disorder. Absolutely. Therefore, there is a need for high-quality research that includes systematic reviews that can either support or refute the analgesic efficacy and safety in patients suffering from chronic non-cancer pain. Well, we have been reviewing papers on pain management in the emergency department for many years on the SGEM. One of the first episodes to look at opioids for pain management was SGEM 55. Our bottom line from that episode was opioid prescribing in the emergency department will continue to be a problem, and it has, and that the study that we reviewed did not provide enough high-quality information to implement a guideline at my hospital. The case scenario for this episode is a woman with a worsening of her low back pain for a month. Many different pharmaceutical treatments, as well as non-pharmacological modalities, have been tried for acute low back pain with limited success. These include acetaminophen, muscle relaxants, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, steroids, benzodiazepines, there's also been a number of non-pharmaceutical treatment modalities that have also been tried to treat low back pain. And these include things like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, chiropractic, physical therapy, and acupuncture, also with limited success. So this gets us back to the use of opioids. The American College of Emergency Physicians has a guideline on the use of opioids for adult patients presenting to the emergency department with acute non-cancer pain or an acute exacerbation of chronic non-cancer pain. Yeah, and they have four questions that they try to answer and give multiple recommendations. So we're just going to run through those four questions. The first one is, if you have an adult ED patient with non-cancer pain for whom opioid prescriptions are considered, what is the utility of a statewide prescribing drug monitoring program in identifying patients who are at high risk for opioid abuse. The ASAP gave to this question level C recommendation. The use of state prescription monitoring program may help identify patients who are at high risk for prescription opioid diversion or doctor shopping. The second question in the ASAP guideline is in the adult ED patient with acute low back pain, are prescriptions for opioids more effective during the acute phase than other medications? Two level C recommendations are here. First, for, for the patients being discharged from the ED with acute low back pain, the emergency physicians should ascertain whether non-opioid analgesics and non-pharmacologic therapies will be adequate for initial pain management. Number two, given a lack of demonstrated evidence of superior efficacy of either opioid or non-opioid analgesics and the individual and community risks associated with opioid use, misuse, and abuse. Opioids should be reserved for more severe pain or pain that is refractory to other analgesics rather than routinely prescribed. All right, for the third question, again, adult ED patients for whom opioid prescription is considered, 
appropriate for treatment of new onset acute pain are short-acting Schedule II opioids more effective than the short-acting Schedule III opioids? Level B recommendation states that for the short-term relief of acute musculoskeletal pain, emergency physicians may prescribe a short-acting opioid such as oxycodone or hydrocodone products while considering the benefits and risks for the individual patient. Level C recommendation states that research evidence to support superior pain relief for short-acting Schedule II over Schedule III opioids is inadequate. All right, and the fourth and final question in this ASAP guideline is in these adult ED patients with an acute exacerbation of non-cancer chronic pain, do the benefits of prescribing opioids on discharge from the emergency department outweigh the potential harms? Three level C recommendations. First, physicians should avoid the routine prescribing of outpatient opioids for a patient with an acute exacerbation of chronic non-cancer pain seen in the ED. Number two, if opioids are indeed prescribed on discharge, the prescription should be for lowest practical dose for a limited duration, for example, less than one week. And the prescriber should consider the patient's risks for opioid misuse, abuse, or diversion. And lastly, the clinician should, if practicable, honor existing patient-physician pain contracts and treatment agreements and consider past prescription patterns from information sources such as prescription drug monitoring programs. Now, these guidelines were published back in, I believe, 2012. And while I think they're somewhat reasonable, uh, they didn't have my favorite number of five. I think they could have expanded one of them into five, and then you would have had my favorite number. But one final thing to remember in patients with chronic non-cancer pain is to manage their expectations. Don't set them up for failure. They need to know that pain might not be resolved 100% in the emergency department. And in fact, I often say, you know, if you're alive, oh, you're a 2 out of 10. <laughs> my throat's a little sore today. My back might be a bit sore. I got a game knee. You know, so if, you know, getting to 0 out of 10 is unrealistic. If you're alive, you're a 2. And also that most patients will have persistent symptoms with functional impairments for weeks to months. We need to get a clinical question out of you, Sergey. So what are we going to ask? Is the use of opioids to treat chronic non-cancer pain associated with the greater benefits or harms compared with placebo and alternative analgesics? And the reference? Jason Bus and colleagues published an article in JAMA in December 2018 with the title, Opioids for Chronic Non-Cancer Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Let's run through the PICO. What population were they looking at? They looked at adult patients with chronic non-cancer pain who were randomized to an oral or transdermal opioid, either in a pure form or in combination product, versus any non-opioid or placebo control. And those patients were enrolled in the studies with a follow-up for at least four weeks. And they had a number of exclusions, and I'll list those in the show notes for everybody. What was the intervention then? Administration of an oral, either pure or combination product, and or transdermal opioids. And they compared it to? And they compared those opioids to either placebo or an active non-opioid comparator. 
And let's run through the outcomes. They did have a number of primary outcomes. What were their three primary outcomes? Three primary outcomes included pain difference via 10 centimeter visual analog scale, physical functioning, and incidence of vomiting. And then they had five secondary outcomes. What were they? Secondary outcomes included emotional functioning, role functioning, social functioning, sleep, and rates of overall adverse effects. So the author's conclusions were, quote, in this meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials of patients with chronic non-cancer pain, evidence from high-quality studies show that opioid use was associated with statistically significant but small improvements in pain and physical functioning and increased risk of vomiting compared with placebo. Comparisons of opioids with non-opioid alternatives suggest that the benefit for pain and functioning may be similar, although the evidence was from studies of only low to moderate quality. End of quote. All right, for systematic reviews, when we're looking at ones for therapy, we have seven quality checklist questions. So let's run through those seven questions. The clinical question, is it sensible and answerable? Yes. The search for the studies, was it detailed and exhaustive? Yes. The primary studies, were they of high methodological quality? Yes, for placebo arm and no for the non-opioid analgesics. The fourth question, the assessment of studies was reproducible? Yes. And the outcomes were clinically relevant? Yes. How about the heterogeneity of the primary outcome? No. The I2 was 70% for pain and 66% for physical functioning. And the last question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? No. Those are the seven quality checklist questions. Let's run through the key results now. They identified 96 randomized control trials with over 26,000 patients. The median age was 58 years and 61% were female. What's the big key result? The big key result was or is is that no clinically significant differences in pain, physical functioning, or emotional functioning were noted by authors, but there were significant increase in vomiting in opioid arm. So what I'll do is I'll put together a table and I'll list all the outcomes because like I said, they had three primary outcomes and five secondary outcomes. And I'll put what the differences are and I'll put a column on, were they statistically different? And did that statistical difference reach clinical significance? But they also broke up uh, studies into high quality randomized trials and low to moderate quality randomized trials. And I'll list more of the details in the show notes. But you know, I want to get to the talking nerdy part. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Let's talk nerdy. Let's talk nerdy. I mean, I've got the voice for it right now. So let's talk nerdy. This was a very <laughs> impressive and meticulously executed systematic review and meta-analysis, emphasizing the lack of analgesic and functional benefit of long-term opioids use for chronic non-cancer pain at the expense of increased risk of adverse events like vomiting. Considering that the senior author in this study was Dr. Gordon Guyatt and organized out of McMaster University, the home of EBM, I would be very surprised if they published anything but a high-quality systematic review. But when we were putting this together, Sergey, ah, this is why I love you, Ben. You put down 
five strengths, five weaknesses, and how many limitations? Oh, that's right, five. Oh, I love it. So we're getting lots more information in, but we're sticking to my favorite number. So let's go through, from your opinion, what do you think the five strengths of this systematic review and meta-analysis were? Five strengths as follows. Number one, authors performed a fairly comprehensive search for eligible randomized control trials in any language. Number two, data imputation for missing non-significant outcomes was nearly perfectly executed. Number three, authors for evaluation of the primary effects use minimally important differences. Number four, sensitivity analyses that address methodological differences, length of follow-up, and reported versus converted change in pain scores were once again meticulously executed. And lastly, the study had a fairly large sample size. Well, those were the five strengths. Give me five weaknesses. Five weaknesses as such. Weakness number one, results of the low to moderate quality trials that compared opioids to non-opioid analgesics were restricted to treatment lasting one to six months and therefore may not apply to individuals with substance use disorder or other mental illnesses, to those involved in litigation, and to those receiving disability benefits. Weakness number two. Most eligible trials allowed for post-randomization titration of opioid dose, which precluded between trial subgroup analysis of higher versus lower doses of opioids. Third weakness. There were 73 trials, which is about 76%, with frequent greater than 20% missing outcome data. Only 21 of 96 trials addressed mean or median morphine equivalent doses per day of 90 mg or greater, which contributes to weakness number 4. And last, weakness number 5, only 48 out of 96 trials adequately concealed allocation. All right, well, those are the strengths and weaknesses. How about the five limitations? Based on the systematic review, authors clearly pointed out that it was impossible to assess the long-term associations of opioids with chronic non-cancer pain because no trial that were included in the systematic review followed up patients for longer than six months. Limitations number two. None of the included studies provided rates of development of opioid use disorder, and only two studies reported rates of overdose. Thirdly, subgroup effects could not be evaluated for opioids versus active comparators as there were less than two trials in each subgroup. Number four, the modeling of risk difference for achieving the minimally important differences was based on the assumptions that could not be directly assessed and might not have been met. And lastly, heterogeneity associated with pooled estimates for pain relief and functional improvement among trials of opioids versus placebo may have reduced evidence quality. Thanks for uh, picking up the load on that section. Usually I like to be a little more chatty during the talk nerdy section, but I was resting my voice and having a sip of tea while you did that. <laughs> now let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We agree with author's conclusion that the opioid use for managing chronic non-cancer pain is not clinically superior to placebo or non-opioid analgesics with respect to analgesic efficacy or functional restoration, 
but is associated with more side effects. And how about an SGM bottom line? The SGM bottom line. There appears to be no long-term analgesic benefit from prescribing opioids for chronic non-cancer pain, either nociceptive or neuropathic. However, opioid use is associated with increased adverse events. And how about a case resolution? Our patient was explained that continuous use of oxycodone for her lumbar radiculopathy will not alleviate her pain and improve her functional status to the level she's willing to accept. And therefore, she needs to use a combination of non-opioid analgesics and non-pharmacological treatments, for example, physical therapy with greater physical exercise, and she will need to have a follow-up with either spine specialist or pain management specialist. And how are you going to take this new systematic review and meta-analysis and apply it clinically? Clinical applications of this systematic meta-analysis would be as such. Long-term opioid use, up to six months, for patients suffering from chronic non-cancer pain, is not associated with significant analgesic relief and functional benefits in comparison to placebo or non-opioid analgesics. Their use, however, is associated with higher rates of adverse effect particularly vomiting. Therefore, routine prescribing of opioids in the emergency department for patients with chronic non-cancer pain, once again, nociceptive or neuropathic, should be discouraged. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? I'm afraid that taking opioid analgesics, oxycodone in your situation, or hydrocodone, hydromorphone, or tramadol for your chronic painful condition will result in more harm to you than in alleviating your pain and restrict your functional status. I would recommend you not to take this medication any longer and instead consider using combination of non-opioid analgesics and non-pharmacological treatments. And that brings us to the Keener contest. And there was no question last week and therefore no winner. But we have a great question this week. What is it, Sergey? So here is the question. Sumerians called opioids holgil. Ancient Greeks called them pharmakon. Pakistani and Afghani called opioids rirdia. And Paracelsius named opioids laudanum. What is the common theme along these names that has important clinical implication? Well, if you know the answer to this keener question, the first one for 2019, then send an email to the sgm at gmail.com. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Thank you, Sergey, for coming back on the sgm and sharing your pain expertise. Thank you so much, Ken, for giving me another amazing opportunity to talk about pain management in the ED and beyond. I immensely enjoy having our conversations. Well, I hope my voice wasn't too distracting. Um, I'm trying to think maybe I should give the SGM tagline in my best FMDJ voice. But we usually have the guest skeptic give it, but I'm the one with the accent right now. I'm the one with funny voice. What do you think? Do you think I should do it? Because you've done it in Russian. You've done it in Russian New York accent. I think one time you even did it in Spanish. Yes, I did. But I think you're right. You deserve to do the SGM tagline. Okay, here we go. The SGM tagline for 2019 in my laryngitis voice. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Yeah.